0: So um, this semester, every Wednesday night, we've been looking at encounters that Jesus has uh, with people in John's gospel. And we've seen all kinds of encounters. And tonight is, is a very interesting one. We're toward the end of Jesus's life. In fact, right at the very end of his life, we are kind of at the scene leading up to the crucifixion where he would die. And so this scene is different in the sense that it's, it's Jesus interacting with kind of through Pilate. With some religious leaders. So, those are the main parties. You have Jesus, you have Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and you have these religious leaders of the day. Now, let me set the stage for us about exactly kind of how this is about to work so that when we read the passage, it'll make sense. So, by this time in history, uh, the nation of Israel has been long a captured nation. Um, for many, many years now, centuries even, uh, they, they exist under the rule and authority of another. And at this time, the authority that they were under and the rule that they were under was the Roman government, uh, the Roman Empire. And what would happen in the Roman Empire is that when they would conquer a new territory, they would send out a, a governor or a prefect to kind of rule over that, that land. And that that prefect, that governor, would um, impose the will of the Roman law or impose the decree of Caesar upon all the people who lived in that land. Now, what the Roman um, Empire would do often, and certainly in the case of Israel, is that they would allow the Israelites, the Jewish people, to kind of keep their little religious practices going. And that's kind of how they saw it, is, hey, uh, as long as you pay taxes, as long as you live under our law and do the things we say... You can do those cute little things that you do. So do your sacrifices, go see the priest, do your religious observances. Let's just be clear, pay taxes and honor Caesar. And so that's very much the setting here in the first century in the time of Jesus. Now, into that setting comes Jesus. Jesus was from within that system. He was a Jewish man, and he was born under not just Roman law, but also very much into Jewish law and Jewish customs. But if you know anything about the Gospels or if you've been at RUF, and if not, that's fine. Jesus came into that system claiming to be the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and dreams. He claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one. That's a big claim. But the thing about Jesus is, as he was making that outrageous claim, he was actually doing things, these miracles and these amazing signs, that confirmed what he was saying. He was claiming to be God, the Son of God. And whereas you might be able to laugh someone like that off, Jesus would then proceed to do some amazing miracle, which would make people think, wow, maybe he is the Son of God. Maybe he is the person that he claims to be. And Jesus had a huge following. Huge following. And so it's not hard to imagine why the religious leaders of that day within that Jewish system, they hated Jesus because the more followers he got, the more attention it took away from them and what they were trying to do. And so, as we've seen even a couple times this semester, many of these religious leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And some of the passages we've read, it said that they would pick up stones to stone him. They wanted to get rid of him. In this passage tonight, what we see is the handing over of Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They do not want to kill Jesus themselves, as we're about to read, but they wanted him to die. Okay? So before we read, I want you to be considering this question about your own life. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you do all the things that you do? Any of the things in particular and all of the things in totality. Why do we do what we do? Okay. Let me read from John chapter 18. It's kind of a long reading. I'm not going to go through it in great detail. I'm going to hit some high points. John 18 beginning verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest of that day. Jewish system. To the governor's headquarters. So here's the handoff from the religious people to the government. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jew said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have, been, would, I would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Every make, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Look, what I want to suggest tonight and what we see playing out in this passage is that we do the things we do because of commitments that we have. We do the things we do because of commitments we have. And the the interesting part about that is sometimes we don't even know we have those commitments until we're right in the thick of it. Sometimes until it's too late do we realize we have these commitments. And tonight we see different commitments at work in this passage that leads to Jesus' crucifixion. And the first one we see is a commitment to reputation. We see a commitment to reputation. Um, Look, this is... This is pregnant in this passage. It is all over the place in here. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in here, but I want you to be thinking about you in your own life. In what ways have you bowed down? In what ways have you given yourself to what other people think about you? To the approval of others, the satisfaction of people around you. In what ways are you giving everything for your reputation? Uh, Pilate... Pontius Pilate is a fascinating person. I mean, we could, it's, he would be an amazing person to do a case study over. What do we know about him? Well, as I said before, he was uh, the ruling Roman figure in this land, a governor of sorts, a prefect. And as such, he would have aligned with the Roman religious practices of the day. Now, some of you know more about this than I do because that's of your interest. Uh, I was reading about this today. Uh, Actually, through the last week. And here's what I found out, just in quick cursory observation. Is that in the the Roman religious system, there were kind of two main spheres. There was the sphere of the spirits. And those spirits guided kind of personal, family, uh, communal, community matters on a small scale. And then you had the realm of the gods like Jupiter and Mars and and all of these, um, sorry, not Jupiter and Mars, Jupiter and Aries and Zeus and all this stuff, uh, they were of kind of the bigger system. They worked on a bigger scale. And so you had the personal spirit system and then you had the bigger God system. And And so Pilate, that would have been his absorbed or default religious mode. But what was interesting about this time in Rome in the Roman Empire is that the govern, uh, the governing emperor of that time, Augustus Caesar, leading up. He started about BC 32 leading up to A.D. 14. Augustus Caesar. Saw an opportunity for more power and he declared himself the chief priest of Rome. And so what that did is it brought the Roman religious system under the guise of the emperor. And so, Pilate wanting to be a good governor, a good prefect, would have very much paid homage to Caesar, who was the chief priest of the time. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Well, in that day, at that time, Pilate is clearly torn between these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders who were under Roman rule. He's torn between them... And what he thinks is true in his own religious commitments and ideas. Okay? So we see that playing out. Pilate is there in, in look no further than verses 12 and 13 in chapter 9. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar.'" So verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, set him down on the judgment seat at the the place called the stone pavement. What's this saying? That Pilate was torn. He did not find fault in Jesus himself. He was going back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. And at his best understanding, he's like, he didn't do anything. He's innocent. But when those religious leaders say, hey, If you don't crucify him, you are no friend of Caesar. We see Pilate's life unfold in front of us. He cared more about his allegiance to Caesar. He cared more about his reputation, about how he would be perceived, albeit from the most powerful man in the world, than what he actually knew to be true. His reputation was everything for him. A few years ago, um, I was talking with a student here at TU, long since graduated. And he was sharing with me about how um, he had basically drank his way through the first couple years of college. Um, and if you're new here at RUF, I don't just sit here and hammer on drinking as like the most unchristian thing you could do. This happens to be about that. So he said that basically for his first two years of college, he just, he just drank at almost every opportunity. And by the time he got to his junior year, he realized that this is not actually who I want to be. This isn't the life I want to live. These aren't necessarily the friends I want to keep. Um, this isn't who I want to be. It's, I don't like who I'm becoming. So we talked about what that would look like to kind of come out of that and the different ways it would be challenging. And And I, and I prayed with him, and, um, and he went off, and I said, let's get together in a couple weeks. Well... I was used to seeing him all the time. I saw him around at ACAC. I saw him at RUF some. I just saw him all the time, but I didn't see him for a couple weeks. And so after a few weeks, I reached out to him and I said, Hey, you know, we'd love to catch up. Haven't seen you around. He said, yeah, let, let's get together. So we did. And I said, tell me what it's been like. And he said, well, that first weekend, I did, I did great. I told um, the guys at the house that that I wasn't going to drink, I didn't want to drink this weekend. And, you know, they kind of left me alone because sometimes people don't. Maybe they have big tests or things going on, and so it's no big deal. But the second weekend when I said I wasn't going to drink and I wasn't going to go out with them, they started saying things like this. Hey, man, what's like? What's up with you? Where Where's the old you? We miss him. We want him back. Who are you even anymore? And they just on and on and on. And he said, as they said these things, I just felt my soul withering. I felt my desire crushed. And I gave in that night and the two nights after. So he said, I'm struggling. I, I feel like a fake. Like I just gave it all for what they thought about me. It, and we hate that for him. Right? Here we are at RUF, we're like, man, yeah, I hate that. And we know, in our own particular ways, with its own particular story, we do that all the time. We cave. We see the thing or the person that we're becoming and we say, I don't want to be that, I don't want to keep doing that. And we give back in. We we wish and we think that maybe peer pressure was just something in junior high which caught us up. And here we are at 18, and here I am at 36. And I'm telling you, it's real. <laughs> it's powerful. Because we're thoroughly committed. And in essence, we worship what people think about us. Our reputation matters all the time. And so it looks like this. You're dating someone, and, it, and if you stop doing those things physically, sexually, then you might get broken up with. And you might wonder what that person's going to think about you, or what they're going to say about you. You wonder if I, if I don't keep making uh, these grades, if I don't keep studying for all hours of the night, then professor, what are you going to think about me if I make a B in your class? Will I still be your prize student? We just do this stuff almost in default. It drives us. We're committed to our reputation. When the pressure's turned on, when the heat's turned up, with our reputation on the line, we find out what we're most committed to. And any time we are shaped or controlled by something, anything, that's what's most important to us. As I said, that's what we worship. Reputation is particularly strong, and Pilate right here just absolutely folds in the middle of this. But we're like him. We do that too. We're committed to that deeply. The second thing uh, I want us to see is that we're committed to systems. We're committed to systems. I'm coming at you on the outline up there. Wow, hang on. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what are they? Systems. Let's look at it. These religious leaders, um, by their actions and words, we get the picture that. You just get the picture that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like, there are these Jewish religious leaders, and they're kind of doing this deal, making this deal with Pilate on how he can kill their person. But, like, oh no, we're not supposed to do it in our system. Uh, but we're going to do everything to get him killed. It just feels dirty. Now, before I talk about systems kind of as a whole, I do need to say and want to say that not all systems are bad. Not all systems are bad. Hospital systems, these big, integrated, holistic things, they aren't necessarily bad. School systems, education systems, government systems, the university as a system. There are all kinds of systems and institutions in our world that aren't necessarily bad. But I would say this. It just takes like a cursory look around us or back in human history to see that systems and big institutions, stuff, it's just ripe. They're ripe for people to come in there and start toying with it and messing around and cheating and taking advantage of the system or exploiting the system. And so the system in and of itself may not be bad at its outset, but oftentimes systems get corrupted. And that's exactly what we see here. The Jewish religion has been utterly corrupted by the time of Jesus' day, look back at verse 29 and 30. So Pilate went outside of them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Here's what they're basically saying. Hey, dude, just trust us. Like, we wouldn't even be messing with him if he wasn't some sort of crook or if he wasn't some evil person. Pilate is wanting a charge. He's wanting official language from them. And they're like, trust this man, he's bad news. Just kill him. What's really difficult about that is that within the Jewish law, within Jewish religion, there was a means by which God instituted that you would do away, that you would kill someone who was Utterly against him and against your system, against the right practice of Jewish religion. So if you had someone who had murdered someone, right, we know this, capital punishment was there, and you would stone him or her to death. If you had someone who would uh, blaspheme against God, they would be stoned to death. Now, that's a whole different discussion that you can talk with me about later. Here's the point. They were sitting there saying... We can't kill him. We can't do that in our system. And that's just patently not true. It's not true. So what is going on here? Why do they say in verse 32, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death? First reason why is from kind of the human level. There's a human reason for this. Under Roman law, the most cruel kind of death would be crucifixion. There were other ways to kill people. There were other ways to execute people. But crucifixion was the most torturous and painful kind of death possible. You've probably heard things like this. Jesus didn't die from the wounds. He died from asphyxiation. He drowned in his, in his, in his fluids. He, he suffocated. Why would they want him to die that way? I put it in your outline, I think. Yeah, it's in there. Read that quote with me. One scholar says it like this. In Jewish eyes, the execution of Jesus on a cross would bring him into disrepute. It was considered the same as hanging. Passages in Acts would confirm that. In Deuteronomy 21-23, enunciates and declares that a hanged man is cursed by God. So here's what's going on from the eyes of those jewish religious leaders if they could get jesus hanging on a cross then it would follow that all of jesus certainly jesus would die but all of jesus's followers because the jewish law said so would look at him hanging on the cross and say well deuteronomy 21:23 says that a hanged man is cursed by god therefore jesus must be cursed by god therefore he is not the messiah And you shouldn't follow him. Come on back to our religious system. So that's why they hand Jesus over to be crucified by the Romans. They were so committed to this system and this this warped rationale that moments later they are asking the Roman officials to release Barabbas. And Matthew says that Barabbas was a notable he was a notable criminal. People knew him to be a terrible person. And they're saying, give us that guy. Kill Jesus. Crucify him. And the, the ultimate picture of commitment to this system is in chapter 9, verse 15. At the very end of it, the, the Jewish religious leaders are crying out, we have no king but caesar now i don't know if that struck you as odd but when the when the religious leaders are saying our ultimate allegiance is to caesar the wheels are off the bus the train is off the tracks the system has gone awry oh oh right god in the old testament is our king not anymore caesar What about all the amazing ways God delivered you throughout your history? Doesn't matter. We want to kill Jesus. Caesar is our king. Their system led them to killing a Messiah. The one they would hope for. So That's a human reason. That's as they saw it. But, But let me show you something else. There's a divine reason that's at work in this commitment to this faulty system. Part of what's unfolding here is that as Jesus, this Messiah figure, is handed over and during this sham trial with Pilate, he is handed over and he endures this trial and he eventually is crucified because this is exactly what God intended to happen. Exactly. Listen to this earlier in John's gospel. We didn't cover it um, here on Wednesday nights, but Jesus himself said, now, now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? He was speaking of himself and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John comments and says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Y'all, Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. And then it played out in real time and space. They crucified him. Uh, the gospel writer Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, he says it like this in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He uh, uh, Luke is is recording Peter preaching a sermon to a bunch of people. And Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified And you killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that tension? Peter's saying, this was exactly what was supposed to happen before the foundation of the world. Jesus was delivered up exactly according to plan. And you're the ones that killed him. That God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens. And you did it. And you're responsible for it. You killed the son of God. He would go on to say that they were cut to the heart. I guess so. And they repented and they came and they said, We need to be forgiven. That's the right response. What's happening at the cross as Jesus hangs there is Deuteronomy twenty one, twenty three is actually fulfilled. A hanged man is cursed by God. And Jesus at the cross receives the curse of God for our sin. And he takes it from us. We have the curse of God because we have disobeyed him and we've rebelled against him, and Jesus becomes the curse. He takes it on himself. So, in the religious leaders' commitment to their broken religious system, we see God at work. Let me encourage you with this, and there's gonna be three implications for this. God is absolutely 100% using this evil. Thing, This evil happening for the greatest good that has ever happened in the world. God is using evil for good. Three implications for our lives. First one, we need to recognize that from time to time, we get caught up in systems and swept into them before we even know it. And this can be as, as innocent as a friend group that starts off fine and then you look up, and you're doing things, you're, you're, you're saying things, you're making fun of people, you're doing any kind, any number of things, and, you, and you're like, oh, God, like how did we get here? Or it may be something more institutionalized, like a, like a fraternity or a sorority or something like that, where it, it's innocent on the front end and it's fine and can be really great, and then you get in and at some point you have become this thing that maybe you never wanted to be. And you just got swept up in it. And that's just kind of the air you breathe. Again, I'm not anti-fraternity sword. It happens in all kinds of places. It happens within Bible studies. They become gossip circles. If, you, if someone says, oh, I'll add you to the prayer list. That's like, no, 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 don't. Like, that means y'all are probably talking about me all the time. All right, tongue in cheek, kind of. Um, or it can be as serious as, as being in a gang. People join gangs because they want family. And then they look up and they're killing people indiscriminately. Systems are at play around us. They're at work and they're powerful. The second thing that I want us to say is that that we are absolutely responsible before God for our actions. It's that, that twofold thing that we see in Acts that God planned it and also the people who killed him were responsible. It was the blood was on their hands. And the Bible doesn't try to answer that tension. It just says it's both true. God is sovereign and we are responsible in our lives. Again. Big category, we can talk about it later. We don't get to outsource the blame for the things that we do. Thirdly, implication of this, and I want this to encourage you, God is always at work. Always at work. Always, always. Even in the most evil thing, he is at work. Even in the worst thing that's happened to you, talk about last week some, God is at work there. We may not know why right now. We may not know how it's all going to turn out. God is always at work. There are no surprises to him. He is truth embodied. He is pre-existent truth. He has always been. God truly knows how this world works together. And he knows your story. All things work together for good is what scripture says. And that is true if God is in it. The last thing we see tonight, the commitment to an unseen kingdom. I'm going to read verse 33 through 38. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Can you imagine this for Pilate? He doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He has no idea what to do with Jesus. In some ways, he, just, he probably just wishes he would disappear out the back door And like send him off and somewhere and hopefully never see him again. But he's got these people asking for his head. And what does Pilate do? In the midst of this, he folds. He wants to be a friend of Caesar. But before that happens, Jesus looks at Pilate and says, I have a kingdom. Think about it. He's looking at the most powerful institution in the world. He's saying, dude, I've got a kingdom that you know nothing about. My allegiance, my commitment is to a realm that you don't even understand. I am so committed to truth that it drives everything I do. Jesus had earlier said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. There is this unseen kingdom, this unseen king that Jesus is utterly committed to, even in the face of the Roman emperor himself through Pilate. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? Think about this. The same historian that talked about Caesar and all of that says, in the first century, we also saw the birth of a brand new religion. Although he was executed by Rome at an early age, Jesus would have had a massive impact on the Roman Empire. After his death, his message of eternal life and hope was spread across the empire by missionaries such as Paul. And although Christians in Rome suffered appalling persecution at times, their ideas refused to die. Instead, Christian ideas would conquer Rome itself. What happened through Jesus and his commitment to this unseen kingdom is that he willingly went to death for the sins of the world, which no one understood from the human level, but from God's vantage point, it was precisely what had to happen. It was why he came. So how does the greatest empire in the world get upended and overturned when God comes to redeem it? when he comes to lay down his life for it, and when people begin to believe it and begin to say, he died for my sin, it's unseen. It's causing me to trust in something I can't see, but it's true. And it said, as the, as the historian said, that that message of eternal life and hope rang true in people's lives and it spread throughout the world. It's an unseen kingdom and an unseen king. I'm going to tell you this, and we'll be done. Um, this weekend, uh, I got back in town Sunday uh, early afternoon, uh, drove home, kind of a mad flurry to get our kids uh, and, and us ready for a Halloween party we are going to with some friends. And uh, in the middle of that, again, we're making costumes and trying to clean up house, blah, blah, blah. Um, Sarah mentions to me and said, hey, a, a childhood friend of mine, um, there were several sisters, I think three or four sisters in this family. Um, one of the sisters is really sick. I saw it on Facebook. I texted to find out some more, or I found out some more through my sisters. And and one of the sisters is really sick. And um, and it's not looking good. And so, um, you know, I, I said, man, that's so, that's so awful. And we were doing a lot. And so a little bit later, we got in the car. And, and, and Sarah said, she turned to me and said, hey, could we help? fly some of her sisters home so that they could be with her, um, be with their mom and with their sister before maybe she passes away. And Here's what, here's what you have to know, is that for the last several years, um, after at the advice of some friends, we've been opening up credit cards, doing all kinds of crazy things, um, not running up a bunch of debt, but just kind of playing this game so we could earn all kinds of travel points, airline miles, hotel points, and all this stuff, because our friends went to Europe for free for a week. I was like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Sign me up. So we've been amassing all of these points and, and, um, because I want to go to Europe. And Sarah says, can we use some of our, our points to do that? And I fumble with my words then like I will now. I, I said, sure, we can do that. Um, and don't hear me as the hero. Hear me as the reluctant person who wanted to go to Europe. I realized we should probably do this. So Sarah texts her friend, tells her what's going on, that we want to help get them to to Louisiana for whatever this would become. And her friend texts her back. Sarah starts crying. I'm driving, so I can't start crying in full, but... The friend writes back and says, well, um, walking home from church today or walking in my car for church, I prayed that God would make it possible for us to get home. They, They didn't have money to buy a plane ticket. I prayed that God would make it possible for us to get home. I got your text. God is at work. It's unseen. We couldn't have known that. It's real. You can commit yourself to Jesus. He's asking you to commit yourself to the most real, true thing in the world. And he loves you. And from the inside, it becomes more and more clear. A commitment to Jesus makes all the other commitments that we give our lives to pale in their worth and in their value. It's unseen, but it is real and it is true. And Jesus asks you to come in. you just receive it. you just say, "I believe that, I need, I need to be in. Forgive me of my sin, bring me into your kingdom. Child of God. Let's pray.